Located down a scenic stretch of Interstate 70, just 40 miles outside of Kansas City, Missouri, is Lawrence, Kansas. Founded in 1854, this rural college town of just under 100,000 residents began as a center of free state politics. It has since blossomed into a cultural oasis of fine arts, outdoor recreation, and thriving local business. Within this cultural oasis lies the city's sanctuary, Fog Allen Fieldhouse, home of the historic Kansas Jayhawks men's basketball team. 62 regular season banners adorn the rafters, including an NCAA record 14 straight conference titles. Ranked number five in Final Fours, three NCAA tournament championships, two Helm National Championships, one and only Wilt Chamberlain, Free State, basketball's great, hail to old KU. But for all the cheers of jubilation that can be heard across the campus, wails of despair are equally loud. For just down Memorial Drive, seated in the shadow of Mount Ariad and the campus bell tower, sits a terrible graveyard. David Booth Kansas Memorial Stadium. One of the seven oldest college football stadiums in the country, this house of horrors has played home to almost 100 years of gridiron heartbreak and futility. Over time, the stadium has gone through a number of renovations, including a 2014 removal of the track which outlined the football field. But despite moving the cemetery, the school left the bodies with a 9-56 record over the seasons that have followed. An all-time winning percentage decades below 500, generations of futility that would drive Sisyphus insane, and the ghosts of a program that no coach can raise from the dead, this is Goodwill Haunting. Good evening and welcome to this special Halloween edition of Fountain City Sports Media, a show for Kansas City fans by Kansas City fans. I'm Reese and this spooky All Hallows Eve Eve, I am joined by Kyle and special guest Austin. Two diehard KU fans who are here to just like run down the history of this football program, the languishing despair of the fan base, and just what is it going to take to bring this program back from the dead. Kyle, before we get going, how are you doing this week, man? I'm doing great. Uh, I, I got to say, after last weekend's games, um, the Sunflower Showdown in which Kansas Looked like we were going to be competitive in the first quarter against Kansas State, maybe, and then got blown out by 40-plus. And then um, my other favorite team, Iowa State, um, playing really a classic game against Oklahoma State. I think that was about what we thought the game could have been. Um, a lot of Iowa State fans were sort of sounding the alarm bells about it, but I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I thought, it was, I, I thought it was a good showing to go in there and hang with them like we did. In the world of Big 12 football, it was a good week. Well, that's awesome to hear. What was the final score of that Iowa State game? I was kind of keeping tabs on it at work, but I didn't get to see how it finished. Oh, I want to say 24-20. Uh, no, 24-21. Uh, yeah, 24-21. Oklahoma State? Yep. Feels bad, man. Yeah, uh, and, and honestly, bad. it actually wasn't quite that close. We, we, we sort of made a late game push. 
Well, if it makes you feel any better, my Iowa Hawkeyes played a classic as well, as in classic Kirk Ferentz blowing a six-point lead in the fourth quarter. Ooh. Like, when it was it was 20-14 to 14 when I, like, had to go get off my break and go back to work, and I'm like, I know how this one ends. We lose. And guess what? We wound up losing. It's funny, Reese. You know, uh, uh, a lot of how you approach your Iowa football fandom is exactly how my father approaches his Iowa State fandom, where the second things start to go south... He'll just get up and be like, I know how this story ends and leave the room and not even not even worry about it, not even check the phone, not even look at the score. And I want to say that he's wrong, but he's usually not wrong. Well, I mean, in my defense, I have three presidencies and 20 years worth of just, you know, smashing my head against the wall watching us lose these kind of games. Yeah. Uh, I believe the final score in this one actually, though, was 24-20. Yes, 24-20, not 21-20 the way I expected. But Hawk's going to Hawk. That's the way it is. Austin, how are you doing tonight, man? We're happy to have you on the show joining us. Thanks for making the time to to make this happen. Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously happy to, happy to hang out and chat sports and some beer with you guys tonight. But, I mean, thankfully, doing better than the uh, Kansas football team's doing that we're going to dive into uh, quite a bit here tonight. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. You know, it's uh, it, it's a pleasure to have my buddy Austin on the podcast because, I, you know, our friendship began freshman year at KU, much like, as we'll get into, the bright ideas of what KU football could be after the 2000. 2007-2008 seasons just filled with optimism going to football games our freshman year yay we're gonna be good we're gonna be competitive and that has never been true oh, I was gonna say yes we, we sure stuck with that team our freshman year and yeah when the Turner Gale era and yeah we stuck with it yeah how did you guys wind up being roommates at KU anyway was it like the random algorithm or did you guys know each other no, it was uh, it, it was sort of the random assignment. We we had both, I think, elected to stay in like the honors dorm, like the nerd dorm. It was awesome. Yeah, exactly. Just random chance, and here we are, number of years later. Do you guys have any PG level college stories that you can share about your times being roommates at KU? Oh my God, too many. Uh, share one with us. Oh God, which which story is the best? Are there any KU traditions, any like KU Visha equivalents or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to think on that. I mean, well, Austin, you tell one. <laughs> I'm punting. <laughs> there's, there's, there's too many stories to, to even to even begin. But but basically our freshman year, Kyle had we had this. We shared the same room and had bunk beds. So Kyle had the upper bunk and I had the lower bunk. And Kyle absolutely loved that. Because he could annoy me at annoy me at any and all hours of the day and night, and just pester me to play games, whatever. It was Kyle's favorite thing to do. And that that's such a great place to start because that is something that has never changed. That is a core part of my personality. I'm absolutely an instigator. So the second that I sense that somebody might be irritated but trying to ignore me, I'll just oh I'll, yeah, I'll just turn it up to eleven. It's it's not a great quality, but you know, it's me. Is your zodiac sign the house cat then? <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to get that joke, but I don't get it. No, never mind. It's uh it's an, it's not a good joke. That's a, a solid three win joke right there. Well, oh, that hurts. So you guys, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys went to KU together. Was KU your guys' uh, first choice to go to school? I mean, like, were, were you born and raised Jayhawk fans? It's like, yo, I can't wait to go to Kansas. You know, be a Jayhawk, go see the basketball team, all that stuff. Good question. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fourth generation student at, at KU or was a fourth generation student at KU. Uh, my grandfather played basketball for a year at the university. So, I mean, I bleed crimson and blue, like more than, more than most people, um, grew up watching every basketball game can remember many of them dating back to like 2002. Um, and even some before that didn't follow the football team as much when I was a kid, but then of course, as I started to get good and the mid two thousands definitely became more of a football fan and have followed that as well ever since. That's so awesome. When did your grandpa play basketball there? early 40s it was right before uh he got drafted into the war after his first year because he wasn't he wasn't a starter or anything where they were exempt from the draft uh so he was drafted into world war ii after that but he had one year on the team under under fog allen kind of on the on the freshman squad or i guess what we would call kind of the the practice team today that's incredible yeah it's so awesome. like one year under fog yeah it's uh, yeah it's pretty cool uh something that kind of a fun little ku story that i that I will, you know, something I'll cherish, I guess, for the, for the rest of my life. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously they've got a letter too, which is really awesome. Like signed by the coach being like, Hey, come play ball at KU signed fog. Yeah. It was basically his letter recruiting him to KU. And since he was just on like the freshman team or whatever, he, he wasn't offered any sort of a scholarship or anything. But if I, if I recall, I would have, my dad would know this. I'd have to check with him. But my recollection is that they offered him a 25 cent a week job I think it was doing laundry or something in the basement of Strong Hall. That's 25 so cents wild. a week. Yeah. Uh, That's like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and yeah, a- and the letter is signed for a C, Allen. Oh my gosh. That'd be like if my great grandpa got called to play football in Notre Dame by Newt Rockney or something like that. I got a Pony Express in the mail. <laughs> and and, Jeez, and just like, oh yeah, after a year, well, got to go fight Nazis. So let me play for like the greatest college basketball coach of like that 50 year span and then go kick ass. Yeah. So then my grandpa said, you know, we got a call from the England. It was Winnie. Oh, sorry. That's what he called Winston Churchill. They were really close. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> yeah. That's, um, I, and honestly, I, I, Austin is your guy as a correspondent during March Madness, during any kind of like Big 12 segments that we're going to do. Uh, it's really exciting that they're figuring out a way to play the season safely. Um, look at me always waiting for basketball season. I sort of have a, a, a less authentic Kansas story than Austin. I grew up a diehard Iowa State fan and I still am. And so for some of my family and friends, it was a little traitorous for me to go to KU. Um, I sort of learned about KU through a like a music festival and like academy that I attended there back in high school and um, so I wound up going there for music and really didn't necessarily realize the whole culture around basketball um, until I got there and so Austin was really great from that respect because like you just said he's been a fan for his entire life and remembers everything there is to know about KU basketball. And I had always remembered them as the David and Goliath situation where it seems like even in years that we were terrible, Iowa state would play KU close at least one of the two games. And so it was honestly kind of fun to like go down there and be part of something that was so storied. I mean, Kansas has almost never had a losing season in the past 50 years. It's a good point. It's a very good point. Well, there you have it. You have some literal diehard blue bloods and you got some converted company in Kyle here, but get ready because we are about to dissect the story of the University of Kansas football team. Making their debut in 1890, the University of Kansas football team carbon dates closer to the United States Civil War than World War I. 
Those 130 years have bred an atmosphere of apathy, with only 12 total bowl appearances, and their last conference championship coming before man stepped foot on the moon. On any given Saturday, tailgating lots, Memorial Stadium, and Lawrence, Kansas itself becomes a ghost town. Mediocrity the cause, stolidness and lassitude the symptoms. We are back on Fountain City Sports Media, so let's dive right into the first question. This is going to you, Austin. Tell me what it's like growing up as a KU fan. Uh, what have you come to expect from the football team in particular? Yeah, I mean, and as I kind of mentioned here in that intro, I mean, definitely diehard fan growing up and definitely more the basketball fan initially. But, you know, these day and age, what I've come to expect from the football team is not much, to be very frank with you. Um, I mean, wins are what I want, but you know, when you look at that schedule every year and you see all those big 12 opponents and you think, which one of these can, can we win? What, what game can we come out victorious? And the answer is usually maybe one, maybe two, rarely any more than that. And usually the maybes become no's. Did you go to a lot of games at KU before you were a student there? Like, can you speak on what the game day atmosphere is like there in the stadium in general? Yeah, I, I've been to a few football games before I was a student and then a number when I was. But, I mean, the game day atmosphere there is really all about tailgating and all about having a good time. At least when the program's not very good, as it has been obviously for the last decade, um, it's more about having a good time and then maybe not even going into the stadium. I mean, staying out and tailgating, drinking beers, watching other games on TV and you know, if you're at a house – Etc. That's almost more important than the game. And then if the game gets good, you go into the game at halftime or something. You know, if you're a student, you had tickets. But yeah, I mean, that was more what it was like. Definitely when they were good. I mean, the crowd, it was awesome seeing Memorial Stadium full of full of fans. Um, saw a few exciting games there. And one that I know will touch Kyle's heart a lot was uh, when we beat Iowa State on like a, a field goal in, over, in overtime back. I don't know what year that was, but it was probably like 2009. I think that was 09, yeah. That was after the uh, that was after the Insight Bowl year, I think. Was that Gene Chizik? No, that was no, that was Rhodes' first season when we were so, you know, so full of hope. But that was when we finally got back to a bowl and won it against Minnesota. So that was like our comeback year and um Kansas was ranked number 15. So just to touch on that a little bit, I, you know, I, it's, it's easy to be a, a victim of recency bias, especially with college football, because there's a new game every weekend and you can kind of tie yourself in knots. If your team's good, you can think of ways that you might drop one to a bad team. And if your team's bad, you come up with ways to hope that you can beat a good team. But one interesting thing from last weekend with this KU beat down by Kansas State and then Iowa State hanging with OSU till the fourth quarter I think there's a changing narrative in Kansas football where we've been much maligned for good reasons, some might say, by the Big Ten and SEC in particular for not really playing much defense, right? It's just an air raid league that puts up 50, 55 points a game, at least the best teams do. And then, you know, when Oklahoma squeaks into a top four spot in the BCS, then they just lay an egg because they can't defend. I think that that, you know, that narrative is changing. Austin, I think you'd alluded to this in a text, but like, 
the idea is our defense is good, and we actually saw that in the first half against Kansas State. Uh, I mean, eventually they pulled away towards the end of the first half. That was rough. But we saw some some really good defensive play. Iowa State in particular, the defense has gotten much better over the years. Oklahoma State, obviously, they talk about their defense way more than they talk about their offense. So I I don't know. I, th- I think it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next five years, and that, that may tie into where we think KU might be going. Well, then that kind of brings me to my next question then. Growing up, what was the expectation of KU football, both as a diehard KU fan and Kyle, you as an Iowa State fan? Did you guys expect to go, you know, six and six and qualify for a bowl game? You know, was even sniffing a bowl game significant of a good year? Or was it just kind of like, yo, I hope we win one or two games this year? I mean, I'll I'll take that one first. The powerhouses were different back in the day with Nebraska and the conference, Colorado, when they were good. I mean, the Colorado story is pretty, pretty turgid as well as ours. So the dynamics were a little different, but Oklahoma has always been good. You know, the Texas schools historically have been better than they are now. So, yeah. Yeah, growing up in the 90s must have been really tricky because Nebraska was still Nebraska. Oklahoma was Oklahoma. Texas was still really good on their resurgence. K-State was doing really good with Dan Snyder. Um, excuse me, Bill Snyder. Uh, the Big 12 was a really formidable conference back then, you know, so I could understand how it would be difficult to get a foothold and get ahead. Uh, Austin, how was it as a KU fan? Did you guys, was it bowl game or bust every year or was a bowl game like what a bowl game used to be where it was like, hey guys, we're going to a bowl game. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I I really wasn't, you know, as close into KU football really almost until the Mangino era. But even then in the early 2000s, I mean, it was, you know, you expect to win, right? I mean, we went to four bowls in Mangino's years and, and won three of them. And so, you know, that came to be what we expected was, you know, that six and six record to to get to a bowl game at that time. And, you know, we're a power five school. We shouldn't be, we should be competitive. Right. And otherwise, why is it, what's worth being a fan? How are you going to retain fans if, if you're not competitive? Yeah. Well said. That's very well said. The Jayhawks football program, Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees all have one thing in common. All three don't have a face. Contrary to their historic basketball brethren, the university's football program lacks a signature head coach who has managed to enjoy a long, successful tenure. One which fans can look back and definitively say is synonymous with KU football. Fans could only wish for this kind of pigskin profit. At the turn of the century, KU would find themselves making such a wish, not clutching a rabbit's foot, but a monkey's paw. Enter Mark Mangino. In 2002, the university would hire Oklahoma Sooners offensive coordinator Mark Mangino. Riding a wave of momentum as part of a recent national championship coaching staff, he was a hot commodity having coached with the likes of Jim Tressel and Bill Snyder. Known for his intense, in-your-face personality, Mangino was tasked with reigniting a program that had lost steam in the years prior. Rock, chalk, hard knocks. All right, so you mentioned Mangino earlier, and uh, you had mentioned his bowl record. So overall, KU's only been to seven bowl games since 1976, and four of those came during that Mark Mangino era. He certainly has to be in the argument for most successful tenure at KU, right? 
Yeah, I I mean, I think he definitely has had the most successful tenure. He's tenure in terms of any sort of recent coach. I, I believe he is the only coach in like 60, 70 years that left KU with a winning record. Might need to fact check that, but um, but I, be, I believe he is. And, you know, that I mean, that in turn makes him successful. Absolutely. Kai, what, what were your thoughts during the Mangino era? Was Is he the best coach in your lifetime, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of hard to say again, because we were seeing them as kind of the opponent back then. Uh, but I do remember that it seems like Kansas went from middling to below average in the Big 12 to suddenly very good. Um, and so we'll get into that, I'm sure, in the cast a little later, just about like what makes a program successful, because we've thrown a lot of paint at the board in the last, you know, 12 years since Mangino left. And, you know, none of that has really stuck or led to any sort of success. And at worst, it's been just terrible. And so it's hard to know, you know, it's a mix of so many things, uh, recruiting, money, team culture, talent coaching staff, all that. And, you know, it's hard to know what, um, you know, what, what goes into each individual situation. But I do remember not really seeing Kansas as, you know, like the gauntlet of the big 12 and then suddenly in 07 and 08, it was yikes. They're good. Well, back in the days when you guys were watching and you were younger, was the big 12 in the era of the big 12 championship game yet? Was it was it divisional at that point, or was it still like the top team gets the best bowl bid at the end? We had championship games, I believe, in like was it ninety six through 03? I'm pretty sure there was a there was a title game all the way up until KU or the conference went from twelve to ten. Ah, okay, really. And then they took it out, but then they put it back in because we could never get a team in the college football playoff because we lost a game. Essentially our good teams lost a game. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty oh, sure that's right. Yeah. 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 You're right. I'm, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I kind of forgot about that because Oklahoma won it so many years in a row. Dude, Oklahoma was a thorn in everyone's side back then. Ridiculous. To be honest, I think the very first college football game I can remember was 97 Oklahoma versus Nebraska, which was big because it was a one versus two. And man, that was a heck of a football game. I, like that's that's the game that drew me into college football. Some of those old school Big Twelve games, which was just like salt of the earth, big uglies football. Dude, that was so much fun to watch. And here's the thing, man. I feel like we might be headed back there, especially with the quality of some of the games we've seen this season. Results aside, there have been some good games already, and you know, a lot of it's weird with. Um, the adjusted schedule due to COVID and stuff. But even last season, last season was a fun season. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to stay on track in, in regards to Mangino right now, because would you say he was kind of the the coach you guys both remember most in terms of, I don't say growing up, but growing up as fans of KU football and Big 12 football? Yeah, Mangino is definitely the coach that, that I remember growing up. Um, struggled, struggled to remember, you know, too many details before that just due to young age and really not following the program when I was, you know, a little kid at, at that kind of age. So yeah, Mangino is definitely the guy. Do you remember when Mangino came to KU or did you start watching uh, while Mangino was at KU? Yeah, I, I definitely was more in the middle. Um, obviously he came in the, in the early two thousands, but I, I probably started watching more around the, you know, 2005, 2006 as we started to get good. No, that was a. I mean, that's the time when I really started paying attention to KU football too, because growing up they were perennially a. I don't want to say a bottom dweller. It's a little harsh, but I mean, KU was known for basketball. They weren't known for football. 
I think the first time I really started paying attention to KU was right around the time that Glenn Mason left during the, the late 90s. Because during that time period, my boys downtown, University of Northern Iowa football, were the class of the Missouri Valley, then Gateway Conference. And our coach, who had won almost all the conference titles in that decade, Terry Allen, took over at KU. And uh, I forgot you know, about that KU connection. Yeah, and, and to follow on with the Terry Allen connection, I'm originally from southwest Missouri, and Terry Allen later became the coach of Missouri State down there. He sure did. Dude, fun story. One time when I was a little kid, I remember the last game. This was back when Marshall was playing FCS ball. Like, Marshall would beat the crap out of us in, like, the semifinals every year. And just my little seven-year-old heart couldn't take it. And I was so sad. And my mom arranged for me to meet Terry Allen. And I had no idea. She just, like, she walked me to the stadium because we lived, like, oh, geez, a 10-minute walk away. And, like, took me up to his office. And he's sitting there with, like a 1997 program he's like hey reese your mom tells me you're a big fan of northern iowa football and i didn't know what to believe dude it's incredible up until like a few years ago i still had this signed program from terry allen he is the nicest dude your mom made that happen that's incredible i don't know and this was back in the 90s too it wasn't like you could just google like his email address and be like dear terry you know she had to probably like call five different bureaucracy people throughout the university to get his number but that was a it was a great young memory. However, anyway, I, I digress. I wonder if back in the day it was easier because you couldn't just tweet at them, right? Like if her name came across his desk, he's like, "Oh wow, she really tried hard to get this nine year old kid a memory." That's great. <laughs> American Telegraph and Telephone Operator, can you get me in touch with Terry Allen of Northern <laughs> Iowa football? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, sorry. What I was getting at with that, though, is I remember when he left for KU and I was heartbroken because we were bad for about four years after that. And, you know, I was rooting for KU because I'm like, man, I want Terry's team to do so well. And there was hope for me that he would turn KU around because he was coaching Northern Iowa back in the days of Kurt Warner. So, like, the dude knew his way around the offensive side of a football. But recruiting for KU and playing in the Big 12, like we talked about in that turn of the century period, was just that's a tough task. Yeah. And it's the same story now. I mean, we're going to dig into that with the teams since the downturn. But yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to be competitive year after year. Yeah, it's a murderer's row of coaches in there right now. Well, anyway, as I mentioned, uh, Terry Allen could never quite kick that team out of second gear that Glenn Mason seemed to get them up into. What do you guys think the expectations were for Mangino who was one of the offensive coordinators, part of that Oklahoma turn of the century resurgence under Bob Stoops? I mean, it's hard to say, man. I mean, I, we should ask somebody like 10 years older than us, you know? It's a good question. It's just like I wasn't paying attention back then. At the, at the same time, um, I mean, we hadn't won. We hadn't had a winning season in, you know, what, six or seven years or something like that before. So, I mean, he was brought in to kind of be that fiery guy to try to, you know, light a fire under our players and, and get them to go out there and be competitive. You know, it's it's interesting because what's the what's the formula for getting coaches now? It's like you either get a disgraced or former big name coach, a la Les Miles now. You try and get some guy who's been coaching well at an FCS or a, you know, a mid-major central Michigan, a la Terry Allen. Or you take a stab at one of the coordinators for a super successful coach, either in the NFL or college football. You know, so it's, it's like the song and dance really hasn't changed much since back then to now, wouldn't you say? Well, it's true. And, you know, we talked about this a bit, but uh, when you run down the unsuccessful coaches since since the Mangino era, you get giving the younger coach with early success, Wayne Turner Gill, a chance. 
that didn't go well. And then he leaves and goes to Liberty and has great success with a smaller school and a smaller conference, which is frustrating. Then you give the guy who had a flash in the pan, it turned out, success at Notre Dame and Charlie Weiss, a massive bloated contract. And I mean, that was just a disastrous hire. Then you sort of let the fire die down and go in-house for four and a half years with Clint Bowen, then to David Beatty. I mean, that basically went nowhere, although... I understand that they did try to tread water, but I mean, there has to be almost no um, recruiting allure there, you know? And then you take a stab at, like you said, the big name coach with Les Miles, and that's sure not working out so far. I I think I I agree with what Kyle said. (laughs) Well, and and, and like, just real quick to dig a little deeper in that, the question is not just about head coaching, right? Because in all of those staffs, I mean, Clint Bowen, was a part of almost all of those staffs along the way. He left for like two years, but he was the defensive coordinator or I forget what other positions he held within the within the team. But yeah, anyway, he was he, he was coaching for us for like the better part of 10 to 12 years over the last 15. And so that kind of continuity with, within a program can be a huge advantage. But then the question becomes whether you keep guys like that or you make a move like Les Miles did and, and, and bring in a more unknown guy like Brent Deerman to be the offensive coordinator and then immediately have some success with him last season. That Boston College win when we hung with Texas was awesome. I mean, we, we really saw a, a lot of development from the offense, but it's, you know, it's, it's a huge balancing act of who to hire and who to bring in. It's tough. I have a story I could tell, but it's not really in line with this thing that's it's okay do it. what's the, yeah yeah do it do, do yeah it. T- tell the tell the story no so kyle mentioned the uh, the texas game from last season that we where we hung with them you know right till the end i had just moved in to a new apartment out here and hadn't really fully decorated it yet out in the bay area and uh when we were hanging with them that game i had obviously had a, a couple beers by the second half and was having a good time and you know the score is up about you know 40 to 40 give or take around that point and I found I had an old game day flag in my in my closet and I pulled it out and hung it on the wall and decided that was going to be my permanent wall art because of that game. That's and, awesome. I and and it, stayed there, it stayed there the year I lived there until, until I just moved. That's so great. Dear listeners, I'll have you know that Reese mailed me a uh, Kansas City Chiefs 2019 Super Bowl champions flag that now proudly hangs in my room. I woke up to get in line at the McDonald's at 5 a.m. that morning to get the flag. (laughs) We, uh, you know, fandom runs deep here at FCSM. FCSM? I mean, heck, Austin, quick sidebar, talking about his dope Chiefs hat right now. Can you just paint a picture of that hat for our listening audience right now? And tell us where you got it and also about the fan base out there. Yeah, definitely. So I don't don't think this was ever mentioned kind of at the the top of the show, but... Um, after college, I, I moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area, so I am a remote fan from from halfway across the country um, at this point. But um, as a part of the historic Chiefs run last year, the Super Bowl, um, went to all of our uh, Bay Area Chiefs kind of fan base watch parties out here, and, and they did some uh, a limited edition run of hats that they sold at the Super Bowl. That's basically the the Chiefs logo with the uh, Bay Bridge kind of superimposed uh, in the center of the arrowhead. And so, yeah, it's definitely a kind of a one of a kind. And I know when I first bought it, they said there were about 15 to 20 of them that they'd made. Um, But I do believe after we won the Super Bowl that they did kind of a a bigger run for people out here. So there's probably a few hundred of them now. And and to answer the part of the question about the fan base out here, I had no idea until I started going 
going to these watch parties in San Francisco about how, how passionate, I mean, obviously Kansas city fans are passionate everywhere they are. Right. But I had no idea how many there were in the Bay area that would show up. I mean, we packed a bar. I had to get to the bar three hours early for the super bowl, just to even hardly get a spot, a standing spot, um, for the whole game. And some of the most, one of the most fun evenings I've ever had and absolutely a blast. A Midwest fan base unrivaled in passion and dedication with a new head coaching hire with the personality to match, would Mark Mangino be the one to finally return a heartbeat to the heartland? Find out when we return to Goodwill Haunting. Welcome back to Fountain City Sports Media. It's that portion of the podcast where we're going to review a beer. But tonight, since it's Halloween special, we're going to call it a witch's brew. Nice. Well, at least Kyle liked that joke. I'm sure my future kids about 20 years from now are going to have some sort of psychic damage randomly and be like, what's wrong? It's like, I don't know. It's like I got a joke from 20 years ago. Just hit me in the head. (laughs) So... Austin, as our, as our special guest here tonight, you will be the one taking part in this beer review. I'm going to walk you through the steps on how we do this. We, we have a, a bit of a different way of doing things. We kind of take the base model of how Cicerones review beers, but we put a nice little Fountain City sports media twist on it. So we're going to have you review five key components of this beer. Number one, aroma. Number two, appearance. Number three, flavor. Number four, mouthfeel. Number five, aftertaste. So starting with aroma, I'm going to ask you to crack open that beer for everybody, pour it into a glass, and let us know what you smell. Got to make sure to get the uh, the can crack in there. He's a pro already. Got to get that ambiance going. So while you're pouring that beer, Austin, you know, it's uh, foolish of me not to ask, what will you be sipping? Yeah, tonight? so being to the Bay Area, I have to do a Bay Area brewery, and I'll do one of the most famous breweries out of the kind of extended Bay Area of Russian River Brewing Company up in Santa Rosa. So tonight, tonight I have their Mind Circus, which is their Hazy IPA, and I'm a big fan of Hazy IPAs. It's one of my favorite styles of beer, so I figured I'd review this beer for you guys tonight. Man, doing the doing like the native special there with the the Russian River. That's awesome. Uh, so you are you a big hazy IPA guy then? Yeah, I lo- love hazy IPAs. Love you know the the tropical, the fruitiness with still that kind of IPA kind of punch there at the end. Absolutely. Well, you're in the right part of the country for it. So why don't you crack that bad boy open, pour that into a glass, and let us know what you smell? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the scent of the beer. I mean, as with most hazy IPAs, but especially this one. You definitely kind of get that, you know, that citrus aroma that just really kind of captivates, captivates on the nose. It's very, it's a very elegant, you know, very pleasing beer to smell on the nose. Um, very, you know, dank in color and, and uh, yeah, citrusy. Well, uh, you're getting citrus notes in there. Are there any sort of like tropical notes in there? You know, mango, kiwi, anything like that? Or is it not that kind of hazy IPA? No, definitely getting those tropical notes as well. Some, you know, pineapple, pineapple and mango kind of mainly. Oh yeah. Super easy to drink. In that case then on a scale of one to 10 with one being garbage water and 10 just being the greatest thing you've ever smelled in your life, where would you rate that? 
just in terms of smell just in terms of smell yeah no in terms of smell i mean it's definitely definitely in terms of especially beer smell it's got to be up there in kind of the you know the eight range or so eight right on sounds good to me so then going from an eight in aroma next up we have appearance what are you seeing in that glass what does that beer look like color clarity all that good stuff in terms of appearance i mean it's definitely a very very it's an unfiltered hazy ipa so it's very cloudy very dank you know kind of that lighter color that you come to expect out of a hazy but it's not i mean it's not super light it's still a pretty heavy abv at seven percent for an ipa um and so, yeah, you get that nice kind of golden, you know, thick, cloudy, kind of hazy, hazy hue. Dude, right on, right on. All right, in regards to appearance then, scale of 1 to 10, uh, where would you like to put that? Yeah, I think I got to stick with the guns and also keep it in, keep it like a 7.5 to an 8. I mean, it's, it's a, great color, a great color for a beer. Nice. Um, and you, when, you, when, you're a, when you're a hazy aficionado like me and you have a lot of hazies, Obviously, if it's too light of color, you know, it's going to not, you know, it's not going to have that, that hoppy punch in it. But when you get that kind of darker color, but still quite cloudy, hazy, you know, you're in for something special. Well said. Well said, my friend. All right. So then moving on to number three, flavor. About to be the mayor of Flavor Town. What are you tasting in this beer? Yeah. And, and this is kind of going to go along with the nose, but you get a lot of the citrus and tropical flavors as you, as you would with most hazies. I mean, you do definitely kind of get that pineapple and, and mango, you know, notes on the on the tongue or I don't know what the verbiage is for that. <clears throat> but, yeah, when you when you taste it, you definitely get that the pineapple and the mango coming through on the palate. And, and it's very easy drinking. I mean, it, it's seven percent, as I mentioned. And to go along with that, it doesn't it's an easy to drink beer and, you know, a day in the park. Yeah, I would I would give the taste probably. a Yeah, seven seven right on respectable flavor profile then all right number four mouthfeel how does that thing feel sloshing around in your mouth is there a lot of alcohol warmth is it smooth acidic bitey what are you feeling yeah it's definitely not super acidic and bitey you wouldn't get that typically from a hazy it's very smooth as i just mentioned in kind of the the taste it's um it's very easy to drink kind of beer it's not gonna i mean you don't have to be a beer lover to enjoy hazies. You can get people that don't like beer to really enjoy this kind of style of beer. Nice. Um, So so true. Definitely a much smoother beer, easy to drink beer, you know, very refreshing for, for, you know, a heavier beer. Yeah. Hazies are very popular and it's kind of funny there. Someone described to me as they're almost becoming the new domestic in a sense of, you know, like back the way you got people into beer in the seventies and eighties, like have this ham Schlitz American light lager. And it's like, okay, Nowadays, it's like, try this wonderful, juicy IPA because it's super easy to drink. And everyone says, okay, all that That's being said. That's a really set. interesting alignment. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the easiest way to introduce a non-beer drinker to a beer is either through a sour or a really fruity hazy. Because typically, you're, you're coming from folks that, you know, don't want the real beer, the, you know, that beery, hoppy taste. And right. sour, sours and really dank hazies are probably the easiest way to do it. Yeah, yeah, there is a real big stigma with IPAs because people, you know, liken them to those old school West Coast hot bombs, which, you know, the style yeah, has right. just evolved so much that it's, it's not really not that anymore. It makes me wonder what breweries like Stone are doing now, you know, because they're still cranking out their old standards. But it's like, how do breweries like that adapt? You figure stuff out. As our buddy Skip Schwartz said, it's not necessarily beer you keep cranking out. Keep an eye out for 
Spiked teas, didn't he say? Yeah, right. Spiked teas. Yeah, the seltzer revolution, all that. Yeah, totally. We'll see. We'll see if the porkle's correct. Hey, sidebar on seltzers. Are you guys getting quirk seltzers from Boulevard out in the West Coast yet? I have not seen any. Um, as far as I don't Boulevard, think I didn't see those up here. As far as Boulevard goes, yeah, I see Tank Seven, which is all over out here. And then you, you do see Space Camper now and kind of the local the local liquor store, which is Bevmo out here in, in the Bay Area. And then you see Boulevard Weed on tap at about three or four bars in the city that I know, at least. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Well, if you want to be like the most popular and coolest guy on the block, push those Boulevard quirks the second you start getting them out there. Because I tell you what, I mean, I'm not just saying this because I work at Boulevard. They, they recently took first in some seltzer competition in Denver a few months ago. But like there's seltzers and then there's the boulevard quirks. It's it's unfreaking believable. Okay. So all that being said, if you had to give the mouthfeel a one to ten rating, what would you give it? Yeah, I'm gonna go with an eight again. I mean, it's gonna be kinda I know it's kind of a standard uniform thing, but I mean that's that's kind of what I think of this beer and also a lot of Russian River Russian River Brewing Company's beers. Right on. Sounds good. Then number five, aftertaste. Mainly is the flavor you're getting when you exhale and just letting that beer sit after a sip for a while. Is that really different in a good way, in a bad way? Is it different at all? What are you picking up? Yeah, no, definitely. You you definitely feel, you know, with a lot of beer, at least in my opinion, you either have a really good aftertaste or a really bad aftertaste. There are some great beers out there where the aftertaste ruins the experience of drinking a beer. And honestly, like, I don't like that. It, it doesn't make me want to drink the beer if, you know, 30 seconds after each sip, I'm not going to be very happy. But no, I think I think Russian River's done a great job with the Mind Circus. I think that the aftertaste is, is quite nice. You know, you're still getting those kind of fruity aromas, you know, floating through that, that just come through from, from the beer. Absolutely. Good take. Good take. Well, last but not least, this is our secret category that uh, it's like the Easter egg in video games. Number six, we have BDQ, which I'm sure you know what that stands for. But Kyle, why don't you tell them what BDQ stands for? Uh, BDQ stands for Brock Purdy Development Question. So BDQ means kind of Hakuna Matata, you know, Ramalama Ding Dong, whatever you want it to mean. What makes that beer special? Does anything stand out about it? Is it incredibly crushable for the ABV? Is it a really unique flavor? Is this something that you would drink at the top of a mountain and then spike the can all the way down? What what makes this beer special, if anything? Yeah, no, obviously I, I respect this beer too much and most great craft beers to crush the can because... And as what I'm going to actually touch on is something that won't come through really on the podcast, but something that also makes this beer special, I think, is a wonderful can art. I think the can art is just absolutely crazy. It's a, it's kind of a guy with kind of a tornado above his head of thoughts, and then it ends at the top with a circus. It says it's a mind circus. It makes your mind go through a circus of different flavors, emotions while you have this beer. And to top it all off, being that we're in quarantine COVID times, the, the guy on the can is wearing a mask as well. Ha! <laughs> Way to be... Dude, that can might be worth something in like five years' time when they're still making that. Be like, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's you true. You got a 2020 edition with the mask? Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> Not photoshopped? Anyway, what a fantastic beer review, Austin. Uh, thank you so much. Austin, for- I feel like you're usurping my spot on this podcast. This is I'll amazing. Re- be quiet, old Kyle. New Kyle's talking. I'll review, I'll re- <laughs> I'll review beer anytime, guys. I, I mean, I have... 
I'm drinking now another yeah. Russian River beer, Citra Flash Mob. So West Coast correspondent Austin is here to help us with everything going on in the beer industry, West Coast style. Austin, thank you for that beer review. I can't wait to uh, find that beer at my local liquor store. Good luck. They, but, do. they don't sell it in the Midwest, so good luck. <laughs> no, no barcode. So No barcode. Off the grid, on point. Let's go. It didn't take long for Mark Mangino to make an impact on the program. Despite a disappointing debut campaign which included a winless record in conference play, the team would go 6-7 and seven a year later, qualifying for their first bowl game in almost a decade. In 2005, Mangino posted his first winning record as coach of the Kansas Jayhawks, capping off a 7-5 season with a bowl win over future NFL quarterback Kevin Cobb and the Houston Cougars. Despite the postseason appearances and moderate success, five years into his tenure, Mangino's coaching record was still sitting below 500. All that would change swiftly and suddenly in 2007, a season Jayhawks fans never could have predicted and subsequently would never forget. So the 2007 season is the season amongst KU fans, at the very least amongst KU fans that are, well, still alive. Preseason Big 12 media had them predicted to finish fourth in the North, but they finished 12-1 and overall, ranked seventh in the final polls. Where did this come from, and did anybody see this coming? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone necessarily saw it coming, but I mean, we knew we had some special pieces. I mean, obviously, we had we had a great quarterback in, in Todd Reesing. We had some great secondary players on our defense. We repurposed some offensive players from, from other positions. I mean, we knew we had some good ball players. It was just a matter if we could really put all those pieces together. Yeah, you guys had that really nasty wide receiver who had played quarterback in like 06 or something, didn't you? Yeah, Kerry Meyer. Oh. Who's more known for a play not in that season, but um, everyone thinks it was that season. Wait, what, what play? What season? Might have to correct me if I'm wrong, but he had a he had the big catch in the game when KU beat Missouri in Arrowhead. I can I, I remember Bob Davis's radio call, um, but that was the game we beat Missouri, so it wasn't 2007. <laughs> that was 2008, heading into the Insight Bowl, right? Yeah, I think. <laughs> well, while you guys hard. are looking that up, I got a question: being you know a non-KU person and a Kansas City transplant, was the Border War always played at Arrowhead up until that point? Not always. It, it used to be, I believe, at each college campus, um, alternating years. And then I think one year, and I don't remember when it started, um, but it was definitely before 2007. They decided to kind of make it a neutral site so they could put, what, a 70, whatever thousand arrowhead seats and really make it kind of that neutral site game and try to make it a premier college football event, When, which I think they got their wish in 2007, but many other years they did not, so... Well, then that leads into my next question then. So if 2007 is the season, then the border war in 2007 is the game. You have number two KU taking on rivals number four Missouri in Arrowhead Stadium on college game day. Second highest capacity crowd in Arrowhead history. Winner goes on to the Big 12 championship game to play number one Oklahoma for a shot at the national championship where do you guys even want to start with this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's ranked number two in the country is the highest KU's ever been ranked in its football program history. 
I mean, you, you said the, the record crowd at Arrowhead Stadium there. I mean, the hype around this game was, I mean, something we've never seen in KU football. I mean, that was the game we were, we were 11 and 0 at that, or yeah, 11 and 0 at that point. And I mean, it was our chance at a perfect season and really doing something that, you know, had, is, had never been seen in KU football history and that people really didn't know if they'd ever see again. Kyle, what was your experience with that game? In weird uh, historical threads crossing, uh, that was the game, or or th- this was the season where the 2008 title game wound up being Les Miles beating, uh, was it Florida? Oh, Ohio State knocked the tires off of Jim Tressel. No, Ohio State, yeah. And so it would have been, I mean, it's so interesting to go back in time and find a way for KU to get into that game. Um, I, I mean, again, I, I'm sort of a... I'm sort of a bad source for this because we would always see Kansas as the bad guys, right? Growing up. But, um, I mean, you, you, you bring up a great point with the preseason poll. I mean, I don't, I, I certainly don't remember thinking that KU would have an 11 and one season and a shot at possibly playing for the BCS title game. I mean, oh man, I wish we could go back. I, I guess we could like sim- simulate it or something. It'd be cool to go back in time and see if, Kansas could pull off a victory against LSU like, I don't know, 20 times in 100 or something. Well, it'd be really interesting to watch because you go back and and check out that border war in 07 and the final score was 36-28, I believe, after that late, you know, garbage time safety. But there was a lot of defense going on in that game. You know, KU got shut out in the first half and in the second half, they're the ones that put the clamp down on Missouri and Chase Daniels. And really made that comeback close to the end. Wasn't that how it went down? Yes. I mean, I, Missouri had a big lead, like 28 to 7 going into the fourth quarter. It was, oh. a, it was a fourth quarter comeback, you know, in a freezing cold, th- free, you know, 32 or something degree environment. And yeah, I mean, it was a college game day game. One of probably the only time we've ever, I can't remember another time KU's been on college game day. Yeah, I mean, there's um, almost no way we're on we're on every week during basketball season. And I feel like that's the only game that's ever been on for football. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, for sure. The winner was going straight to the, the Big Twelve title game, and if you win that, the winner if you won that game in the title game, you were going to the national championship, probably either team, no matter which team would have done that. Yeah. Well, going into halftime, it was fourteen nothing Missouri, but in the second quarter, Kansas missed two field goals, including one late right before halftime. Let's say the game goes into half fourteen six. How do you think that affects the outcome or the mindset of the teams heading into the second half? That's a good question. Yeah, You want to take it, Austin? Yeah, I mean, great question. Great question, Reese. Obviously, I, I don't think it'd be different than, you know, in this game than any game, but obviously missing field goals, I mean, yeah, it demoralizes the team a bit, and, you know, you're like, you're down, right? Because you should only be losing by one possession. It should be 14 to 6 as eight points. I mean, it should not be a two-touchdown game. But obviously, I mean, that also allows the coaching staff to light a bigger fire under those guys' butts at halftime and get them to come out with even more energy, right? I mean, that's obviously the goal. When you miss field goals, don't get down. Fire the team back up in the locker room and come out and play even stronger in the second half. Well, I remember being such a weird game for them as well because, I mean, it wasn't like they were playing bad, and it's not like KU had some sort of, you know, I don't know, Mike Leach, you know, 75 points or bust offense, but they they were a pretty high-scoring team. You know, they dropped a 70 bomb on Nebraska earlier in the season. 
So the fact that they were like stuck at zero points at half was was so weird, especially when their defense had had held uh, Missouri to two turnovers on downs. Remember that they had that fake field goal that got snuffed out and they went for it. I think it was on like fourth and three at one point and they stopped him on that one as well. It, it just seemed like an uncharacteristic game for Reasing and KU. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, I definitely see that point. At the same time, I would think Missouri is probably the best team we had played that year. I mean, they were the second, you know, the, us and Missouri were the two best teams in the Big 12 that season. And, you know, you when you go up against a much stronger opponent than you're used to facing, you never know what's going to happen, right? That's a very good point. You, you know, I... I hate to make every comparison in this podcast between Kansas and Iowa State, like the two teams that I love. But, I mean, I can't help but think about the fact that this this regular season game that Iowa State played this past weekend against Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma State is, by my estimation, I did some historical digging. It's the most important game that we've played in 18 years. I can't think of the last time that we were highly ranked uh, at least undefeated in the conference and at best undefeated overall that we dropped that first game to Louisiana playing another team also highly ranked also with a lot at stake right last time that I could find that of course I actually it's one of the first football games that I remember was when we went to Oklahoma ranked ninth and they were ranked second and got just blown out 49 to 3 this was in 2002 this was I don't know maybe this was towards the end of McCarney's tenure. I'm not sure exactly when. That was Seneca Wallace, man. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and, I, and the rest of the season didn't go so well for us that year. But in terms, and I mean, honestly, it may not this year too. But in terms of, I, I mean, it's so interesting to think about this. Your earlier questions had to do with what do these things mean from a fan perspective? Like, what is the environment when you go to the games? Well, okay, you, you don't expect much, so it's all about the party. What is your expectation growing up or just watching the games on TV? Well, we go six and six and go to a bowl. That's a good season. And so, you know, comparing and contrasting with these big, rabid fan bases in the SEC and Big 12 or even the Blue Buds like uh, Oklahoma, Nebraska, when they used to be in the conference, Texas. I, I feel like these moments are defining, right? Like I, even though it's during a pandemic and there's not very many fans, et cetera, et cetera. I went into this game with Oklahoma State last weekend, like excited. I mean, it's it's all to play for, right? Where it almost it, like it hurts when you lose. But and, and maybe to your point where KU goes down early, but then fights back in the fourth quarter, that loss hurts. But but also like it's great to be there if you're a fan who's not used to such high level success. I, I don't know if you agree with that or not, Austin, but like sometimes those big games that you lose, it hurts a lot less when you're historically used to five and seven or worse seasons. Yeah, obviously, I mean, maybe it does hurt less, but that game was just I mean, that KU Missouri game that we're talking about is by far the biggest game KU football game I can remember and losing that game hurt. I mean, that was our opportunity to do something. I mean, we did something special that year. I think everyone looks back on an Orange Bowl win as successful. But that was our chance to make a mark that no one saw coming from unranked in the preseason to number two and potentially, you know, basically playing for a shot to go towards the title game if you win that game. Man, that's heartbreaking. I, I the other day, just went back to watch highlights of that game. It was about a 20-minute YouTube video. And, dude, it sucks because it's just like – in a Hollywood historical fiction where you know the outcome of something, but you're still hoping that just for some way you can will it to yeah. be otherwise. <laughs> Dude, I mean, yeah. when KU got that stop to get the ball back 
with like 35 seconds or whatever it was, even then I'm just like, oh my gosh, if they could just freaking bust one play, you know, they could just get it down the field. This place is going to have the top blown off. But I mean, we all know how it ends and it's, and it's sad. Here's the thing. We all have those games that you look back on and they're your favorite, like your favorite wins of your team of all time. For me, that's by far the game our freshman year of college in 2001, Iowa State victory against number two, Oklahoma State. Great game. It's one of my favorite games of college football of all time. Closely followed by, I want to say, the 2017 game. I have to check that. But when ISU went down to Oklahoma and beat Baker Mayfield and the Sooners down at their house. That's my second favorite game that I can remember. And, you know, it makes me wonder if... As it goes back to our other limited series in this podcast, Small Market Bias, if we just love those games where the underdog and pull it off, just because like, you know, we're not used to storied success where we're always, you know, eight and one, seven and two, whatever. Those those are the strange differences of different uh, college football fan bases. Well, I fully understand what you're saying. And I think it'd be really interesting to touch down later uh, in a different episode at a different time about. What's the mindset of a Kansas City Chiefs fan now that you have this like franchise quarterback and then some in Mahomes with all these weapons? Yeah. And you know, it's it's, it's not Super Bowl or bust, but it's like, hey guys, yeah. if we don't make the AFC title game this year, big bummer. Whereas what was it feeling like in the 90s or 2000s as a Chiefs fan where it's like, man, if all the stars align and we just play our best football for four straight weeks in the playoffs, man, it'd be so much fun to win the Super Bowl. But I digress. That's neither here nor there. Right. Well, well, r- really quickly there, because this is applicable, I think. Well, uh, we can tie this back in with the coaching carousel, right? In the decade of oblivion that KU's fallen into, where how do you define success over time? So with the Chiefs and Mahomes' giant contract over a decade, if you think of it in the long term, if we win two to three championships during that time, you know, what What other fan base isn't going to be ecstatic about winning two to three titles in 10 years in the, in the National Football League? That's amazing. But then when you look at it on paper and you see the team that we have and the group of coaches and players, offense and defense, you think, well, why not every year? Right. So it's like it's always having to sort of temper those expectations. And that absolutely plays into, again, the Mangino era, which ended in disgrace sort of with a transfer of power into all these different types of coaching regimes that have gone through KU with little to no success at all. I mean, it's it's a historically bad program at this point. Well, that's a perfect transition then into my last question about the Mangino era and heading into the, the final portion of this all. So in 2009, just after two years after their magical run, the school reached a buyout agreement with Mangino after multiple allegations of verbal abuse and mistreatment of student-athletes. In those seasons between 07 and his departure, the Jayhawks finished 8-5 and five and finally 5-7. Five and seven. Now, let's say Mangino never gets booted from KU. How do you think the rest of his hypothetical tenure play out? Do you think they have continued success competing for the Big 12 North and maybe even Big 12 championships? Or was 07 a fluke and you think that Mangino is going to start to regress back to the mean? That's a great question. I mean, Austin, I'm happy to let you take it. I, I feel like just real quick, my take on that is the idea here is how much does the culture of a situation affect the play on the field? And I think the answer is a lot. You know, eventually that's why Mangino was fired, bought out, whatever. I'm not going to blame the record going from 11-1 and one to 8-5 and five to 5-7 and seven on 
necessarily just the locker room culture, but I have to imagine that those issues wouldn't have magically gone away if he hadn't been fired, right? So I'm not sure we're looking at Kansas competing with Oklahoma, Texas, and Nebraska in that time frame. Yeah, so I, I would say probably a regression to the mean. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, th- I think about that question. And at the end of the day, I mean, Kansas is not a powerhouse, right? We had, we had a lot of pieces in play that year that just clicked. And if you're not a powerhouse and you can't recruit to that level, I mean, you have to have a few years of continued success before you can really recruit at that level for a long time. So I, I don't think, you know, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. Obviously, I don't think it would have been, I don't know if it would have turned into, you know, what it has now, but I definitely think it would have kind of gone back to the standard six and six fighting to get into a bowl game every year kind of season like you saw in his last season when we're five and seven. Well, I suppose the question then kind of evolves further into how good of a coach do you think Mangino was? And as you alluded to, how would the culture have affected things? If you remember during the Bill Snyder tenures at K-State, you know, those weren't all roses. He'd have a few stinker seasons of being four and eight, five and seven. And suddenly he's like, guess what, guys? We're 11 and two in a BCS team again. Do you think Mangino potentially had the potential to be like that in regards to his tenure? Or do you think he was going to kind of like regress back to the mean after that spike in 07, which was an anomaly? Austin? No, I I think that, I mean, I don't think Mark Mark Mangino is a Bill Snyder. Um, Bill Snyder is a great coach. Been around the game too long. I mean, obviously Mark Mangino knew what he was doing, knew how to coach. That's true. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that there, it would have been the same kind of program. I think it would have kind of regressed to the mean and kind of settled there. If all the pieces aligned, like they did in 2007, you might get one good year here or there, but I don't think it would be kind of the, the Bill Snyder thing where he could just, you know, literally get a fan base behind him every single season, no matter what. And I feel like also, um, the Snyder to Mangino thing is a total, um, those two situations are, are a great comparison to one another because Bill Snyder is lauded by everybody in the game, coaches and players as just like a really great person and a great leader and somebody who leads by example. And, and, and again, like he came into a program, they were on the brink of cutting the K state football program because they were so bad before he came on board. And so I sort of think about, and again, recency bias here. I'm so guilty of it. I'm sorry. But thinking about this game, you know, the Sunflower Showdown last weekend where, you know, KU, I mean, we just looked dead in the water after we got down a few scores to Kansas State. And just thinking about how, you know, what, 40 years ago, K-State was historically terrible for a decade and then just needed that leader to come in like Bill Snyder and turn the program around. Because before that, I mean, KU had been, so much better than Kansas State all, you know, all, uh, forever. Just to sort of draw the comparison between all of Mangino's issues with how he treated his players and his staff, that bled over into Iowa State. He he was on the, the ISU football staff for a, a season until he couldn't get along with Paul Rhodes, and then they let him go. And we had a pretty good year that year. You know, I mean, so when it comes down to the day-to-day, clearly he could be successful, but I think maybe the takeaway here is that good leadership is also important as well as maybe technical skill. That's a very good point. You see a lot of those longtime college football coaches that wind up getting statues or even stadiums named after them. One of the common factors they all have is people describe them as builders of men. You know, those high school boys come into college, they get under this guy for four years and suddenly they're out there and even though they'll go to the NFL, you know, they wind up being CFOs of companies. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, that's also true in any profession, right? Like people who foster your growth 
And even if you're part of a system, whether it's a university or a job at a company or whatever, you know, you're going to have success when you're being led by somebody who actually cares about you. (laughs) Following the school's termination of Mark Mangino in 2009, the Jayhawks have been left to wander in the desert, desperately searching for any program stability. A coaching carousel of young upstarts, in-house hires, and high profilers past their heydays have yielded no results and left the program to molder amongst the autumn leaves. Millions of dollars in contract buyouts, winless seasons, and no conference road wins since 2009 have left a scarlet letter on the crimson and blue. Can anything be done to change the course of Kansas football? So the final question we have for this evening, it has been a decade plus of drought and misery for a lot of the KU fan base. Uh, I think they're still searching for their first Big 12 road win since Mangino was there. Am I not mistaken? That's correct. So a sobering fact that I didn't know until I was researching this, North Dakota State has three more Big 12 road wins than KU does since 2009. (laughs) Coming in, I'm not shocked. Courtesy of defeat of the Bill Snyder, Kansas State, Kansas back in, I believe it was 2011, and Iowa State in 2014. Yep. So let's just take a take a second here and think. It's been a revolving door of coaches since Mangino's leaving. So we have Turner Gill, who was there for two seasons, Charlie Weiss for two and a half, Clint Bowen finished out that Charlie Weiss season. David Beatty was there for four years, and now finally Les Miles. So my my open-ended question here is kind of twofold. What's it going to take to get Kansas to be a stable football program? And part two, do you think it's possible to make Kansas a stable football program? Yeah. Um, what's it going to take to make KU a stable football program? I mean, obviously, it starts with a good leader. And I mean, I do think we have found, we have a good leader in Les Miles. We have a guy that knows the game. I think the the problem is we have so many problems and undoings from the Charlie Weiss and David Beatty eras with all these red shirts, blue shirts, the number of scholarship players we can have that is slowly unwinding. I mean, we can't go out and recruit the same kind of guys that these bigger schools can. And at the same time, when you're not putting any sort of product on the field at the current moment, how are those guys going to want to come to KU? So, I mean, it's going to have to be a slow build. Once you've got to get a few guys in that make, you know, make their name on the field, bring a program into the kind of the national light, and then it's, just, it's a slow build. It's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year. But, I mean, I do think we can get back to kind of that mid-level 6-6 six and six fighting for a bowl game kind of team, you know, in a few years if, if the pieces fall. I'll agree with that. You know, I, 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 I agree that Les Miles – definitely can gain the respect of both the coaching staff and a team. Um, definitely, we saw last season that he was able to get a higher level of play out of inherited players from the previous regimes than we had seen in the past. I mean, Carter Stanley had his best season with Les Miles last year um, to the point where people were starting to ask why he hadn't been given a chance to be the full-time starter earlier. And honestly, that's an interesting sort of wind back the clock, maybe if somebody like Les Miles had been there developing him from freshman, sophomore year, um, you know, how good could he, uh, how good could he have been? But anyway, um, so like we've seen that ability 
obviously early on people are judging the fact that that year two under less miles hasn't seen any improvement if if anything a regression but at the same time like austin mentioned we're strapped by both personnel and money restraints of of who we can actually go out and recruit and so that's you know that's it's not a winning formula. I'm gonna Reese. I'm gonna put my uh, <laughs> my pitch to you here, which I've I've said this to a few friends who have uh, just universally shut it down. But this is what I want to see from KU. This is what I think we should do. The University of Kansas should leave the Big Twelve. We should leave the Big Twelve, and we should go to either the FCS or the MAC or some. Sh- because this team competing in Missouri Valley Conference or like the MAC or Mountain West, we would struggle to go six and six, Reese. We would struggle. Playing North Dakota State, you and I, playing Missouri State, we, we, we would struggle to win games. And it would honestly, it would be exciting. I would enjoy watching Kansas play these teams. I mean, you- so I feel passionately that we should just leave the Big 12 for a decade. Build the program in a lesser conference well, and then come back. Would you love having that glass ceiling of being a FBS mid-major on you, though, where it's like you have to go undefeated just for a hope to sniff a BCS non-national title game? I guess not. That's what makes it so hard for me. Now, you introduce like an 8 or 16 team playoff. Absolutely, Kansas would rock that. Uh, but it's an interesting point. Well, and... and the, the, the reason I'm trying to bait you with this, Reese, is I want you to speak to your experience as a UNI fan where for years you were perennially competitive and now you're at a level of looking for sort of a 500 season every year that we would love, love as KU fans. Well, you, you know why that changed, right? Tell me. It all happened because Chris Kleiman was Northern Iowa's defensive coordinator. He wound up getting sniped by North Dakota State to be under Craig Bull, who's now at Wyoming. Craig Bull, who coached Carson Wentz and Josh Allen. Now, when Craig Bull left, he handed over the reins to North Dakota State, and that's when North Dakota State turned to the nightmare they are now. Chris Kleiman, as we know, is now at K-State, so he's making all of our lives a nightmare. I mean, great football coach, making our lives a nightmare. They're excellent. Um, yeah. You know, the, the tricky thing with Northern Iowa is I can't say I want them to leave FCS football until they win a national title, which they've only been to the national title game once in my lifetime, actually ever. And, you know, if Northern Iowa did jump up to be in the MAC or, I don't know, best case scenario, the Mountain West, again, would I rather be chasing national titles or would I rather be chasing, you know, Beefo Brady's Bowl births at the best you know <laughs> right uh, all i'm saying is what wh- what do you think of this bait that i'm throwing you that kansas should leave the big 12 because i think they should i think we should leave the big 12 i said well, i'm about to play my uno reverse card here what would you say if hypothetically nebraska goes independent and ku gets sniped by the big 10 oh god no hard pass do you think that makes them a more fertile recruiting ground then Ah, uh, that's well. It's it's you know as much as I just uh, hard passed on it. It's an interesting question because now you know the Big Ten has Maryland and Rutgers, barf, and they're you know ever expanding. We only hang out with uh, them because stepmom says we have to. <laughs> you also you also saw Rutgers blast KU a few years ago. So yep, totally. And they beat Iowa State in the pinstripe bowl or whatever Yankee bullshit that is. Well, so then like. My question is, Big Ten or otherwise, I think it's only going to take the right coach to salvage the KU program. I mean, that's that's so much easier said than done. But when you think about it, you know, Bill Snyder, like you said, inherited a program that was about to get cut. 
until he managed to pull the e-brake on that. And for the last 25, 30 years, you know, K-State's not a blue blood in the way of an LSU even, but like K-State is a college football program that a lot of high school athletes would be thrilled to get a scholarship from. Yeah, for sure. Where do you think that KU should be looking to find their Bill Snyder or find the person who can at least start like a carousel of coaches that are positive? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to get a lifetime coach like like Bill Snyder at Kansas, you've got to look to younger guys, right? And obviously, we, we tried to do that with, I think, with David Beatty. I mean, he's not young by any means. He's a, any means. He's about 50 years old now, but a lot younger than Les Miles, who's in his, I think he's in his 70s at this point, isn't he? Um, yeah, he's 68 maybe. But at the, at the same time, I mean, I kind of, when we hired Brent Deerman, when we promoted Brent Deerman last year, I kind of think the way he ran that offense, I kind of think they're trying to position him, you know, when Les is done to be the guy. I think so too, and and it, it sort of makes me sad that we're zero and five, or yeah, I guess God, I guess we are zero and five now, because I mean the the instant transformation when he was promoted to OC was amazing, and like that's exactly the kind of guy. I mean, he was scrapping in like Division three or whatever before. I mean, that's that's the kind of guy you want who's hungry to like turn the program around, and so. It would be a shame if this particular iteration of the of Kansas football also sort of took a nosedive and they had to scrap it and try something else. That's honestly what we saw with the Turner Gill era, right? Where like, you know, high hopes from the 2010 season, even though it didn't go so well, and the 20, 2011 season was rough and they fired him and then he goes off and has a bunch of success at Liberty. That's not to say that it would have eventually happened with KU. It's a different situation, different culture, different level of team. But it's just hard to know what the right hire is. That's a very good point. It makes you wonder. I think after four years, they did the right thing on pulling the plug on Beatty. Kind of like after five years, they pulled the plug on Terry Allen. You know after four, five years whether or not the coach is right. And again, Reese, let's not forget the records here were, I believe, we can check it, but I believe it was 1-11, 2-10, 0-12, and 3-9. I think that's right. Those sound pretty right to me. I've been looking at them for the last few days. So I feel like they've tried doing the the star grabbing thing twice now. They went after Charlie Weiss, who was, you know, obviously not great at Notre Dame even. Uh, They've gone after Les Miles, who had his heyday at a national title at LSU. I think it's safe to say that going for the disgraced star or former star coach thing isn't the answer. Uh where would you want to look personally right now? Can you give me an example of a coach you would like to see come to KU to try and turn the program around? I think Austin already gave a great example um, with Brent Deerman. I, I mean, you know, the fact that he was in the organization already and then was promoted to offensive coordinator and the fact that, I mean, he, he has a background of just loving the game, right? Like he's coached high school. He coached Division Three, I believe, for a while. Um, like he's in the profession because he wants to be in the profession and cares about players and cares about the game and all that in terms of like the kind of coach you want to bring in. That's a really good question. And I think that has more to do with the culture of the big 12. Like what is big 12 football? It's trending toward large dollar donors building big fancy stadiums like, uh, DKR in, in Texas, which I got to go, got to go to a game in Austin to see Iowa State play at, at Texas last season. And, you know, I mean, it's incredible going to see that, um, especially as a KU or Iowa State fan. I mean, it's, that's another level down there. But the Big 12 is trending, you know, high dollar 
pressure for like high product on the field even as the reputation for an offensive like air raid thing is going away now a little bit you know i think big uh, the, the big 12 as much as we try to like about it that we're that like we are too in the same echelon as the sec and the big 10 results might say otherwise over the past 20 years and so i think the big 12 is now in a real push to 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 compete right and so i mean i'm not sure i have an answer for you about the the template for the kind of coach you want to compete in that environment i i mean i think the kind of coach we want obviously right now i don't think we should any, by any means make a change like you ride less miles right now you let him do his thing try to bring in use the name to bring in some guys um and these are also unprecedented times where no one knows you know coaching in a covid era with limited limited interaction with your players trying to do things via zoom meetings i mean that changes everything right but and the kind of guy we need at our program and you know i think less as i mentioned earlier less has that in brent is kind of that young and hungry coach but if, yeah, if you're looking for a franchise guy, you need someone who's young, who's hungry, who is innovative on the offensive end. And I mean, we're Kansas City fans. Think of Andy Reid and his offense and, and the, the plays he develops. I mean, someone that's innovative, young, hungry. And in the Big 12, you've got to have an offense to compete. It doesn't matter how good your defense is. Oklahoma and Texas are going to find a way to run that scoreboard up. So you've got to have an offense. Those are all good points. Now, I want to throw one more option out there that I've been sitting on this whole podcast. Uh, are you guys familiar with the story of 2009 Jim Harbaugh? Uh, I don't know the full story, but Jim was a candidate back in one of our years because his wife is from Kansas City, if I recall. Yep. So that's a good point, Austin. As you alluded to, Jim Harbaugh back in 2009, back when Mangino was heading out the door, uh, was courted by Kansas. Now, the legend has it, that he wanted to coach Stanford in the Orange Bowl that year, and KU said no way, and that was the deal breaker, and that's what kept Jim Harbaugh from coming back to where his wife's family is and coaching in the Kansas City area and coaching KU. Don't even say if it. If you want to talk about it, if you want to talk about a wrinkle in time, you know that's a big what if. Well, now here's my other what if for you. He's currently coaching in Michigan. He has been good, not great. I mean, by, has he been good though? By, because, Michigan, by Michigan standards, no. They they are not the maize and blue Michigan they want to be, even under the Lloyd Carr era. But I mean, it's not like it's not like Nebraska. You know, they're not disgraced like Nebraska. They're not a terrible program like Nebraska. They're not a program yeah, that you get enough, over themselves enough. like yeah. Nebraska. Fire Nebraska into the sun. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what I'm getting at. Let's say the donor this is Nebraska bot. You have violated your terms of Nebraska. Please drive in your car to your nearest Nebraska location where we can abduct you to Nebraska. So what I'm getting at, let's say the boosters up in Ann Arbor are starting to get a little antsy of the fact that Jim's not taking to the promised land they were hoping for. And let's say uh-huh. Les Miles survives this year, maybe one more year. Would you want to consider reopening, re-extending the olive branch to Jim Harbaugh to take over KU? That's an interesting question. I think that might violate what Austin just suggested, which I think is a good rule that especially because we went after the marquee name in Les Miles and obviously the product hasn't turned around yet. I mean, really, even second season, we're not seeing any of the recruits that we will, um, which for the antsy armchair fan... You know, it's already, it already feels like it's been a long time, but again, because of scholarship restraints, it's early days in terms of who he's going to be able to recruit. 
you know, Jim Harbaugh's 56 right now. So he's not old by any means necessarily in terms of a head coach perspective. But if we're looking for that guy who's going to be a lifetime coach, he's maybe not that guy. But if we're looking for maybe another transition coach to get us into the next level and then then maybe we find the lifetime guy, maybe, yeah. Then again, 56 isn't necessarily crazy. I mean, look at Bill Snyder. He's in his 80s. I mean, these guys, 56 yeah, could be a 20-year coach, which yeah, that's, that's I mean, that might not that's be true. a lifetime, but to a program like KU, that'd be one of the longest tenured head coaches we've probably ever had. I Yeah. It's true. Well, the one thing you'd have going with Jim Harbaugh as well is that, you know, he's tasted the NFL and it has been sweet, but it's also been very bitter. He's had his time playing for a big time football program and coaching a big time football program in Michigan. He seems to me like the kind of guy that if you brought him into Kansas, he would be so hell bent on turning that program around more than anything. (laughs) That Let's say he has a, let's say second and third year, he goes eight and four, ten and two. And let's say Notre Dame comes calling. I don't think he'd jump to Notre Dame. I think he'd say, "No, I've got unfinished business Reese, here." Did you just say eight and four and ten and two next to Kansas football in the same sentence? He turned Stanford oh, around. They were a, that would be so good. They were a bunch of garbage heap until uh, you know, since the John Elway <laughs> days until Andrew Luck and and Jim Harbaugh were there. So That's I think it'd be enough. an interesting what if. So then, last thing we're gonna have time for in this podcast. If you had to predict the next five years of KU football, not what you want, but what you think could happen, give me look into your crystal balls for me on this one. Where do you see KU football in five years? Uh, in five years, Les Miles will not be the coach of KU football, but I do think he will probably stay most of that time. I don't think that they're going to continue the carousel and fire him after two, three seasons. I think they're going to wait and see whether the name does over the long term draw recruits to come play. I I agree with Austin that over the next five years, we have a great opportunity to get back to being competitive because again, this really went off the rails with the Charlie Weiss hire. That's when we sunk so much. I mean, we were still paying him until well after Austin and I had graduated. $23 million in buyouts in the last 15 years at KU. Incredible. And so, yeah, I mean... Uh, n- not to mention the number of scholarships and the redshirt commitments and all that. Like, I mean, yeah. So obviously with a lot of turnover, that's going to be an issue no matter what. But um, I I do feel all, all this aside that we can at least be four and eight consistently in a couple of years. So I would say in five years, we're going to like our, our basement could be four wins. Austin? Yeah, no, I agree with a lot of the... Um a lot of the points Kyle said, and I was just just looking up because I mean Charlie Weiss, after he was fired from KU, was still being paid by Notre Dame as well. And, <laughs> right. I mean, he was getting paid millions of dollars by multiple institutions to basically sit at home and do nothing. Also, it's not out of line for me to say I uh, I I early on in college freshman year had a busboy job at a hotel which will remain nameless. But Charlie Weiss was a frequenter of this hotel's restaurant, and uh, he was an ass to the waitstaff. <laughs> big, big boo for Charlie Weiss and the Houston Astros. Boo. boo! All right, I will actually answer your question, Reese. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, so, I mean, where I see KU football going in the next five years is 
I, I agree with many of the points that Kyle just mentioned. I, I don't think we're trying to do anything in the near term with less miles. I mean, um, Jeff Wong put out a put out a statement this week about having faith in the program, riding with the program. It might have been last week um, about you know thing like, hey, we're in this for the long haul. This isn't gonna, we all know this isn't going to be an overnight you know or overnight turnover of the program to being successful. But yeah, I I mean I I agree. Five years is probably about the limit of of what less miles will, will bring to the, to our program. And, but I, I still believe, and I said it earlier that I believe he, we have the opportunity to kind of become that competitive team where we can compete in most games. Obviously there's always going to be an Oklahoma or someone that blows you out, but I think we can compete with most teams in the big 12 within five years. I sure as heck hope we're playing for bowl games within, within that time frame. even if they're small bowls, it's a stepping stone to get where we want to be. And yeah, I mean, I think in our five in five years, we need to be finding you know the head coach who's going to make this his his lifetime program. And Austin, I'm glad you mentioned that that statement from Jeff Long, simply because we forget in the you know the bright lights of Les Miles National Championship at LSU and multiple seasons contending for national championships and certainly contending for SEC championships that he did build a subpar Oklahoma State program up to kick off what they are now, which honestly, I always forget that. I always just think of him as the LSU guy, but like Les Miles has experience doing this before. I still feel, you know, I get the feeling from Les that he's not necessarily super invested in KU football uh, as like, you know, deep down in his soul. But the question is, do we need him to be? Because he's clearly invested in the job. He clearly loves the game and he clearly loves working with the players. Right. And so, you know, if that's what we need, somebody with a big name who's got an extensive resume in the game to kind of get us back to even just the bare minimum of being relevant. Uh, and try to recreate a little bit of what he did at the beginning of his career with Oklahoma State. That might be that might be good enough over the next five years. Reese, I want to flip this over to you a little bit and say, I mean, I, I'm just so upset that you didn't take my bait about Kansas going to to the Missouri Valley Conference. But uh, I do want you to predict if Kansas did go to the Missouri Valley Conference or the MAC or the Mountain West, could we get to six wins in any of those conferences? Um, MAC. No, I think they're going to be four or five yeah. wins in the MAC. Mountain West, no, Mountain yeah. West is too good. Missouri Valley would be the closest, but I got to tell you what, uh, part of the reason why Northern Iowa's gone back isn't just because Climbing's not there anymore. You know, it's it's also the Missouri Valley's just gotten really good. It used to be a one or two show, like real team league, but now, you know, North Dakota State's obviously North Dakota State, uh, Illinois State, South Dakota State, Northern Iowa, Southern Illinois is finding their way back post Jerry Kill. Uh, I think South Dakota's joined the conference since then. It's just top to bottom. It's just a deeper league than it was. And I'll be honest, I think it's it's got it runs four teams deep every year that could realistically win their FCS game that they have to their FBS game that they have to play. So do I think could Kansas get six wins in the Missouri Valley by the skin of their teeth in a triple overtime thriller at Indiana State to end the season? <laughs> that's what i'm looking for thank you absolutely well it's been a great time talking about ku football i hope for the best for this team i hope that they can someday just get the cobwebs out get the ghosts out of the attic and turn into a respectable and proud football program 
because the Kansas City metro area really deserves that, you know, for how great of a fans they are and and how great the fan bases are. Austin, I want to thank you for joining us all the way from out in the Bay Area, San Francisco, man. It's been a it's been a pleasure talking about you and having you share your wealth of knowledge of the University of Kansas and KU football. Yeah, definitely. I mean, thanks for having me on, guys, and uh, look to doing it again in the future. Hopefully, uh, with basketball season, we can talk about happier things. Yeah, man, we'll see you for some basketball. And, and, oh, and sure. always happy to you know to shoot the crap with the Chiefs. So absolutely. Yeah. We'll get you on here later on for some uh, for some in-depth Chiefs casts. Honestly, Austin was such a great interview interviewee. You should have him sub for me when I can't do it. That was really, I, I, really very seriously, good. Seriously, I'd gladly do it. Kyle, you don't have to be here. I'd do it without him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The University of Kansas Football, a program consistently coffin-cornered against their own end zone. Brief glimpses of optimistic sunlight perpetually shrouded by a fog of directionless uncertainty leave the Jayhawk faithful in a purgatory of hebitude. With the fleeting days of glory ever fading into memory like an echo into the abyss, remember to leave a rose on the tombstone of the Sunflower State. Rock Chalk.